This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio with you for the next hour with all the latest updates on anything to do with mental health. If it's about the mind, the brain, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to make sense of the latest headlines about research into the potential causes and new treatments for mental illness, this is where you'll hear about it first without the hype and distortion of other media sources with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it and better educating the general public on mental health issues. And this is pre-recorded for first airing on March the 4th, 2015. And those of you who have suffered through a long, hard winter of shorter days, you're about to get a big-time reprieve because this upcoming Saturday night or Sunday morning at 2 o'clock, depending on whenever you do it, We go back to Daylight Savings Time. We're going to wake up on Sunday, March the 8th with much longer days. So hang in there for those suffering from seasonal affective disorder, otherwise known as winter depression, or even those of you who have a milder version just called winter blues. Relief is on the way in literally a matter of days. Well, to start off tonight's Psychiatry Today show we have a psychiatry and the law update and it has to do with the insanity defense in murder cases experts say in general the insanity defense is a hard case to win uh, as in the latest example in the murder of the American sniper demonstrates The former Marine convicted of killing American sniper author Chris Kyle and another man was hospitalized multiple times for psychiatric treatment and was prescribed medication to treat schizophrenia. He spoke of pig-human hybrids and the apocalypse, and he was described by Kyle himself as, quote, straight-up nuts, unquote. But jurors found the insanity defense for Eddie Ray Ruth failed to meet the legal threshold, which is that a mental illness is so severe he didn't know right from wrong. Clearly, he is mentally ill, but the jury did not find that that should excuse him from committing the crime. They found that he was capable of knowing right from wrong despite his mental illness, And he was found guilty of murder. He was not deemed not guilty by reason of insanity. But his case illustrates the difficulty of succeeding with such an insanity defense. And this comes at a time when there is a Colorado court preparing to hear similar arguments in the trial over a movie theater shooting in which 12 people were killed. 
The insanity defense is very rare, in fact, and it's even rarer that a defendant wins it. When a brutal crime is committed, it's difficult to convince a jury the person accused doesn't deserve the condemnation that comes from a finding of guilty. And here we've got a man who caused the death of a revered American hero. Kyle was a former Navy SEAL sniper. He volunteered with veterans facing mental health problems after he left the military. And of course, there is the blockbuster film based on his memoir about his four tours in Iraq, which contributed to the intense interest in the murder case. Legal experts say a defense attorney's task to convince a jury that a client is legally insane is even more difficult in cases like that of Ruth, who confessed to killing the men, apologized to the family, and fled from police. If someone is admitting that they committed the murder, it's a pretty tough burden to get a jury to say, let's excuse him anyway, because he is mentally ill. Kyle and his friend Chad Littlefield were killed after taking Roth to a shooting range on February 2, 2013. Ruth's mother had asked Kyle if he could help her son, who she said had suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder after serving in Iraq and Haiti. But the focus of the trial was not post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. Ruth's attorneys said he suffered from schizophrenia and was having a psychotic episode at the time of the shootings and noted that Kyle described Ruth as straight-up nuts in a text message to Littlefield as they drove to the shooting range. Prosecutors painted the 27-year-old as a troubled drug user who nonetheless knew right from wrong. A psychologist testifying for prosecutors said Ruth was not legally insane, but had a paranoid disorder made worse by his use of alcohol and marijuana. In contrast, a psychiatrist testifying for the defense said Ruth had schizophrenia and had described seeing neighbors and friends turning into pig-human hybrids. His defense attorney said that ultimately, experts cancel each other out in the minds of jurors who instead look at the defendant's actions. One juror told ABC's Good Morning America that they were not convinced by the claim that Ruth was having a psychotic episode. This juror was quoted as saying he knew the consequences of pulling the trigger. Of course, the defense plans an appeal. The jury had three options. Find Ruth guilty of capital murder, which they did. Find him not guilty, or find him not guilty by reason of insanity. With the conviction, Ruth received an automatic sentence of life in prison without parole. Under a finding of not guilty by reason of insanity, Ruth would have faced up to life in a state mental hospital. 
Experts say he would have had the possibility of release only if the state could no longer establish that he had a severe mental illness and was likely to harm another person if he didn't receive inpatient treatment. But jurors couldn't be told the potential consequences of that finding. This stipulation lets jurors assume such a verdict could mean the defendant will ride down the elevator with them, which is not something uh, that they would want them to know to influence their decision. This calls to mind the situation of John Hinckley Jr., who nearly took the life of President Ronald Reagan. Uh, he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Uh, again, he, like many of these defendants we're talking about, clearly mentally ill. That was not the uh, matter in dispute. Uh, the legal threshold is, despite the mental illness, could they distinguish right from wrong? But nonetheless, uh, Hinckley was found not guilty by reason of insanity. He was sentenced to psychiatric hospitalization, where he spent many years. But as his condition improved, uh, despite their best, best efforts, prosecutors could not convince judges that he needed to remain confined to the hospital 24-7. And over the years, uh, he has accumulated more and more personal freedom to where he's had family visits um, and even time independently outside the hospital. Now, <clears throat> there are other cases that this situation brings to mind. There's Andrea Yates, the Houston area woman convicted of drowning her five young children before being retried and found not guilty by reason of insanity. She is now in a minimum security state mental hospital. Uh, for the uh, retrial, in her case, the defense focused less on mental health records and experts and more on getting jurors to see into the mind of the woman who drowned her children because she thought that if she didn't, they would be taken by Satan. And now you have a situation in Colorado where the jury selection process is underway to hear the case against James Holmes, who has pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity to killing 12 people and injuring 70 in a 2012 attack in a suburban Denver movie theater. As in Texas, Colorado law defines insanity as the inability to tell right from wrong, specifically because of a mental disease or defect. Uh, there is little doubt that James Holmes is mentally ill. There may be even no doubt that he was acutely psychotic at the time he committed these crimes. But still, the issue will be, despite all that, could he distinguish right from wrong? And that will determine uh, guilt or not guilt by reason of insanity. Now, Colorado is one of only a few states 
that puts the burden of proving sanity on the prosecution. Once a judge allows someone to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, the prosecution must convince the jury that the defendant was sane. Now again, that means legally sane. Obviously, he's insane, but they must convince the jury that he was legally sane. In other words, that despite his mental illness, despite even that he might have been psychotic at the time he committed the crimes, that he still was able to understand and appreciate the consequences of his actions and the fact that he could distinguish right from wrong. So we'll see how that case plays out. Well, we'll have more mental health-related news when we come back from our next commercial break. Uh, coming up right now, you're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. Stephen Hawking predicts aggression will destroy us. Can he be right? Theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking is one of the most renowned geniuses of our time. He's also one of the most insightful and, as it follows, quotable. And earlier this week, Hawking, who was portrayed by Best Actor Oscar winner Eddie Redmayne in the movie The Theory of Everything, dropped quite a doozy as far as a quote is concerned. While speaking at the Science Museum in London, the newspaper The Independent reported, Hawking said, 
The human failing I would most like to correct is aggression. It may have had survival advantage in caveman days to get more food, territory, or a partner with whom to reproduce, but now it threatens to destroy us all. Hawking's observation is poignant, but how true is it? And the article goes on to get opinions from various experts as to uh, how aggression uh, may affect us or not. And we're going to review the rest of the article, but I just want to say before we even do that, I, I think whoever wrote this article about his quote may have taken his quote out of context, may have missed the point. If you look around the globe and uh, you look at what's going on and what is taking lives and destroying things all over the planet, uh, I definitely see the point he's trying to make. Uh, aggression is a very serious destructive force in the world. Nonetheless, let's see uh, what insights there may be in this article. Well, first, there's the issue of anger versus aggression. Uh, experts were quick to point out the slight but significant semantic difference between aggression and anger. While the concepts are easily muddled, a distinction must be made between the two. <clears throat> Aggressiveness has a lot of meanings to it. Aggressiveness really is about the tenacity with which you go after your goals, not about harming someone else. That's a specific subset of aggression. You see already, I, I just see that as uh, uh, just semantic nitpicking. Uh, he clearly, uh, I think, um, is, is very likely talking about aggression in a way that's hostile, in a way that's harming others. He make, uh, Another expert made the point that aggression can be a necessary piece of the strength and will to get things accomplished and survive. But over the last several thousand years, survival has generally not required being harmful toward others. Uh, so aggressive can be a positive quality. It helps us achieve our goals and be successful and make a positive change in the world around us. Uh, again, while that's true, I think it misses the point that it's not likely to be what um, Stephen Hawking was talking about. And then uh, when talking about anger for a moment, uh, one expert thinks we should avoid shunning anger as a categorically bad emotion. Uh, one of the keys uh, for working with prisoners, for example, is helping individuals acknowledge their emotions and validating them rather than seeing them as weaknesses. And in that case, people can be helped to realize if the emotion helps or hurts them with what they're trying to do. Uh, and anger isn't necessarily negative. It probably would be strange if you never got angry. But you can feel angry without acting out or causing harm to others. The problem isn't the thought. The problem is not acknowledging that thought and then allowing it to dictate poor behavior. Uh, 
Okay, that's that's true. Uh, but we know that just having the emotion of anger is very self-destructive. Uh, it causes increased risk of heart attacks. It increases the risk of inflammatory proteins uh, being in higher circulation in the blood. Uh, so while an argument can be made that it may be adaptive at times, uh, again, I don't think this addresses the claim that uh, Stephen Hawking made about aggression being a major destructive force in the world. Now, <clears throat> the article goes on to explain some of what I was just saying about the effects of anger and aggression on the body uh, over time or at extreme levels. Anger is a destructive force. High levels of it are linked with an increased risk of multiple cardiovascular problems, not just heart disease and heart attacks, high blood pressure and stroke. And even a study in January of this year found that people who posted lots of angry tweets on Twitter had an elevated risk of heart disease. Uh, <clears throat> I don't think it's about their use of Twitter. I think it's just about their anger. In fact, the association was so powerful that study authors said Twitter behavior could be a better heart disease predictor than some known cardiovascular risk factors such as smoking and diabetes. I again think that's exaggeration. And then there was the Australian study that found that heart attack risk raises eightfold in the hours following an angry outburst compared to the risk of heart attack in the period after normal anger levels. So these episodes of severe anger actually play a role in triggering a heart attack. Uh, they increase the circulation of inflammatory proteins and uh, also uh, things that thicken the blood and that's probably what causes these cardiac or cardiovascular events to occur quickly on the heels of an episode of extreme anger. Well, is aggression out of control? As he says, Hawking suggests that aggression may have been once useful but is now destructive. However, uh, one expert argued that destructive aggression has been common throughout history. Uh, just look at slavery during biblical times and in the past 500 years. Uh, the argument that we've been a remarkably self-destructive species for a long time. That this is not new. That people abusing power and abusing others has been going on for as long as humans exist. It is, of course, nearly impossible to quantify the level of aggression in a society, let alone to separate harmful forms of aggression from tenacity. Uh, but Let's look at the example of crime rates. They're at their lowest levels in decades, according to recent statistics. But demographic shifts and changes in law enforcement and incarceration may be uh, to credit for this decline as opposed to a uh, lack of harmful aggression or a decrease in harmful aggression. So what is a smart way or smart ways to deal with anger and aggression. 
While aggression may or may not be destroying society, it certainly can be destructive for certain people or in certain situations. Well, the basic advice is check yourself before you wreck yourself. So here are a few takeaways from the experts. One is that there's nothing wrong with wanting to be powerful, but remember that you can be powerful by dominating others or attempting to, or you can be powerful in a better way by encouraging and uplifting those around you. Obviously, you're better off choosing the latter. Then, if you're feeling angry, ask yourself if it might be masking another emotion, such as sadness. This is especially common in men, and I very much agree with that assertion.、Uh, I think that in my practice of psychiatry over the years, it's much more common for women to be in touch with feelings of sadness and experience them in that way, whereas men. When they become sad and depressed, are more likely to manifest that with anger and irritability、uh, than just pure sadness. Getting back in touch with your true feelings may sound like a corny idea, but it's important so that the anger doesn't become your default emotion, and so that you can effectively communicate with others. Also, acknowledge what you're feeling, and then choose how you act on it. And yes, it is okay to act on it productively. One common everyday example that perhaps many of us can relate to is in sports.、Uh, lots of athletes use anger as fuel, in other words, as a motivator to be driven to success. Where other people might quit. So there you have it. Some experts weigh in on Stephen Hawking's claim that aggression will destroy us.、Uh, in some ways, a comment like that harkens back to the anti-nuclear movement of the 60s and 70s. Obviously, dire predictions back then have not come true. Uh, fortunately, man uh, did not uh, nuke himself to bits and destroy the planet in the process.、Um, but still, I, I think he definitely has a point. If you had to say、um, that there is a destructive force in the world,、um, it is it is aggression toward others, and we don't seem to have good solutions to solve this. And some of the ways in which we've approached trying to get things to stop are actually, at least, ineffective, and at worst, making them worse.、Um, so there you have it.、Uh, not sure how you feel about it, but、um, I think that there's definitely something to be said、uh, for his comments. And I think a lot of the experts who weighed in for that article、uh, unfortunately missed the point of what he was trying to express. 
It is time for our next commercial break. When we come back, we'll have more mental health news. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, with all your latest mental health news. Now, this next article has gotten a lot of attention. It discusses how much sleep you should get, and is it possible that you can sleep too much? And uh, you know how important I think sleep is to good mental health if you're a long-time listener to the show. So naturally, I wanted to talk to you about this. You can, in fact, have too much of a good thing, even sleep, according to new research. People who sleep more than eight hours per night have a significantly higher risk for stroke than those who snooze six to eight hours. According to a study published online on February 25th in the journal Neurology. Now, I have reported to you in the past on a show about a study that found that we need a minimum of seven hours to sleep at night, but more than eight and a half hours is excessive and could just lead to your feeling more sluggish and lethargic as opposed to better rested. But this is the first time I can recall hearing of uh, negative health consequences uh, associated with sleeping too much, especially something as severe as having a stroke. Now, in the study, researchers followed approximately 9,600 older adults, average age 62, for about 10 years. During that period, Subjects who reported clocking more than eight hours of sleep nightly were 46% more likely to have a stroke compared with individuals with more moderate sleep durations. Even when researchers accounted for such factors as high blood pressure and physical activity that may have skewed the findings, long sleepers still 
had an elevated stroke risk. Short sleep, considered less than six hours, was associated with a small increase in stroke risk, but the data wasn't statistically significant, meaning that this slight increase in stroke risk for short sleepers could have just been due to chance as opposed to being a real effect. It is worth noting excessive sleep as an early sign of increased stroke risk, particularly among older people, as the authors of the study concluded. Previous large research studies in the United States and China have found similar associations between sleep duration and stroke. The new research adds to a large body of evidence that shows both sleeping too little and sleeping too much are associated with poor health and an increased risk for mortality. And sleeping too much seems to be worse than sleeping too little, according to these statistics. Long sleepers have about a 20 to 30 percent increased risk for mortality, according to recent analyses. Among short sleepers, that number is about 10 percent. All of this raises the question, can too much sleep hurt your health, or is it just that people in poor health tend to sleep longer? Dozens of health problems can encourage people to sleep more, which may partly explain the association between long sleep and stroke or mortality. It's hard to think of any health condition that doesn't increase how much you sleep. Research shows that depression, cancer treatment, a recent heart attack, and even high cholesterol are all associated with lengthy snooze sessions. For what it's worth, short sleep is also linked to numerous health problems, including obesity and diabetes. Generally speaking, when individuals are not healthy, there is a tendency to want to sleep more. It's the body's natural response. Here's typically what happens. When you're ill, you have more inflammatory and immune substances circulating in your system. These body chemicals feed back into brain centers that control sleepiness and wakefulness. The chemicals are working toward trying to restore health to the individual, but in the meantime, they're feeding back to certain parts of the brain that regulate fatigue. Poor sleep quality may also partly explain the connection between long bedtime hours and health problems. For example, if you have sleep apnea, a common disorder in which your breathing stops numerous times during the night, making sleep unrefreshing, you might sleep longer to try to make up for interrupted sleep. The authors of this recent stroke study write that this may have, in fact, played a role in their findings. Might excessive sleep be a cause of poor health as well as a consequence? That's hard to say. 
No studies have found any direct evidence, but experts have a few theories. Long sleep duration is linked to inflammation, and inflammation may contribute to cardiovascular problems, and down the line, stroke and an increased risk for early death. Extended sleep, especially when it's part of an irregular schedule, might throw off the body's sleep rhythms. Sleep is dynamic at night. There are a lot of things going on. Many hormones all get set based upon sleep rhythms. When those rhythms get out of whack, hormones and other body systems aren't regulated as well. Too much sleep can, however, worsen certain health problems such as depression. Well, so how much sleep should you get? The National Sleep Foundation released new age-based sleep guidelines in February, and this also got a great deal of attention. The updated recommendations say most adults need between seven and nine hours per night. Now, a sleep study might be warranted to check someone for disorders that can cause poor quality sleep. Sleep needs vary from person to person, and it may take some experimentation to, on your part to find what is the optimum amount for yourself. If you're functioning well on only five and a half hours, try going to six and a half and see if you feel any better or worse. Any sudden unexpected change in sleep habits should be considered a big red flag. Anytime there's been a change in sleeping where you need more, that's unusual. Usually, as life goes on, you need less sleep. Dosing more than you used to could signal depression, a sleep disorder, or another health problem. So if you have any noticeable changes in sleep habits, mention it to your doctor. And the other point is that there are people out there who are long sleepers who are normal and healthy. So you shouldn't panic one way or the other. It's pretty difficult to sleep more than you need to sleep. Uh, well, I would say that a lot of people I see, unfortunately, do that. And that's uh, because quite often sleep is used as an escape uh, by people who suffer from depression. So it is possible to sleep too much, to be sure. Uh, but I think when all is said and done it's probably more likely that sleeping too long is an indication that there is some sort of other medical problem which also puts someone at risk for stroke as opposed to that there is something uh, directly harmful about the extended sleep period itself. And that would include uh, problems such as uh, depression uh, and sleep apnea uh, sleep apnea, we know, um, is uh, a, a risk factor for both heart attack and stroke. 
Well, next up on psychiatry today, I saw this study about how some brain imaging is demonstrating why certain people with depression may have more difficulty coping with interpersonal rejection. And uh, again, this is you know one of um, many exciting ways in which brain imaging is giving us more insights into human emotion and human behavior. Have you been rejected by a person you like? Well, music star Taylor Swift says just shake it off and move on. But while that might work for many people, it may not be so easy for those with untreated depression, according to this new brain study. The pain of social rejection lasts longer for them, and their brain cells release less of a natural pain and stress-reducing chemical called natural opioids, according to a researcher's report in the journal Molecular Psychiatry. Now, opioids are painkillers. Uh, it refers to uh, where most of them were originally derived from, the opium poppy, uh, but turns out the brain contains its own natural opioids that it would secrete uh, in response to pain and stress and other certain situations. Now, these findings were made in depressed and non-depressed people using very specialized brain scanning technology and a simulated online dating scenario. The research sheds new light on how the brain's pain response mechanism, called the opioid system, differs in people with depression. Well, we'll explain further what the researchers did and what their findings were when we come back from our next commercial break. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott, and we'll be right back with more mental health-related news after this break. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that eating too little and skipping meals can actually cause you to gain weight? When you do not take enough calories in, your body can actually stop you from losing weight. Your body works best when it is adequately fueled. If you fail to eat enough, your metabolism will slow down and your body will become stressed and actually hold on to fat. This will lead to muscle loss instead of fat. Exercise and lightweight training will increase endurance and muscle mass and will boost both your metabolism and your sense of well-being. Eat three well-rounded meals a day containing a lean protein, fiber, and a complex carbohydrate, such as a whole grain, with two snacks, such as fruits or nuts. These will promote healthy weight loss that is long-term. Prior to starting an exercise program, remember to see your doctor if you have any medical problems. Please join me on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because I believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individualized. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing or your child has frequent throat infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you will be treated as an individual, not an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed, and all of your questions will be answered. And when possible, I will recommend natural treatments to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, this is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, with all your mental health news. We're talking about a study showing brain imaging research to document that people who are depressed are not as able to cope with social rejection. Now, when someone that a person is interested in likes them back, depressed people do feel relatively better, but only momentarily. This may also be explained by differences in their natural opioid system in their brain, natural painkiller system in their brain, compared to people who don't have depression. Further research based on this could lead to a better understanding of how to boost this opioid response in depressed individuals to reduce the exaggerated effect of social stress and to also increase the benefits of positive social interactions. Every day we experience positive and negative social interactions. The findings of this research suggest that a depressed person's ability to regulate their emotions during these interactions is compromised, potentially because of an altered opioid system in their brain. This may be one reason for depression's tendency to linger or return especially in a negative social environment. And the findings build on our growing understanding that the brain's natural opioid system may help an individual feel better after negative social interactions and sustain good feelings after positive social interactions. The researchers focused on the mu opioid receptor system in the brain, this is the same system that has been studied for years 
in relation to response to physical pain. During physical pain, our brains release its own natural opioids to dampen these pain signals. The new research shows that this same system is associated with an individual's ability to withstand social stress and to positively respond to positive social interactions. Social stressors are important factors that cause or worsen illnesses such as depression, anxiety, and other neuropsychiatric conditions. This study examined mechanisms that are involved in the suppression of those stress responses. The findings suggest novel potential targets for medication development that directly or indirectly target these circuits and biological factors that affect variation between individuals in recovery from this otherwise chronic and disabling illness. The new findings have already prompted the research team to plan follow-up studies to test individuals who are more sensitive to social stress and vulnerable to disorders such as social anxiety and depression and to test ways of boosting the opioid response. Of course, everyone responds differently to their social environment. To help understand who is most affected by social stressors, they are planning to investigate the influence of genes, personality, and the environment on the brain's ability to release opioids during rejection and social acceptance. The research used an imaging technique called positron emission tomography, or PET. Uh, PET scanning is commonly done in medical practice nowadays, but not on the brain unless it's to investigate something like Alzheimer's disease. We don't yet have a way of saying, hey, let's order a brain imaging test to see if you're depressed or anxious or something else. Believe me, we would love to be able to do that. The depressed individuals all met criteria for major depressive disorder and none was on any medication for the condition. That's important because uh, the medication for depression, of course, uh, would relieve the, the symptoms and would make the person less apt to suffer from more depression as a result of social rejection and uh, it would even be responsible for improving the appearance of their brain on, on their scan. So the results would not um, be true if someone were on medication. Now, before having their brains scanned, the 17 depressed participants and 18 similar but non-depressed participants each viewed photos and profiles of hundreds of other adults and then each person selected profiles of people they were most interested in romantically similar to how online dating works during the brain scan participants were informed that the individuals they found attractive and interesting were not interested in them 
PET scans made during these moments of rejection showed both the amount and location of release of opioids measured by looking at the availability of the mu opioid receptors on brain cells. And what they saw was the depressed individuals showed reduced opioid release in brain regions that regulate stress, mood, and motivation. And during the social acceptance condition, when patients were informed that people liked them back, both depressed and non-depressed individuals reported feeling happy and accepted. This surprised the researchers because depression symptoms often include a dulled response to positive events that should be enjoyable. However, the positive feeling in the depressed individuals disappeared quickly after the period of social acceptance had ended and may be related to altered opioid responses. But only the non-depressed people went on to report feeling motivated to connect socially with other people. That feeling was accompanied by the release of opioids in a brain area called the nucleus accumbens. This is a brain structure involved in reward and positive emotions. You can think of the nucleus accumbens as the pleasure and reward center in the brain. The researchers had actually informed participants ahead of time that the dating profiles were not real and neither was the rejection or acceptance. So no need to think the researchers were cruel to these subjects. Nonetheless, even this simulated online dating scenario was enough to cause both an emotional response and a response on the part of the opioid release in the brain. Before the end of the visit, the staff gave the depressed participants information on treatment resources for the depression. Well, <clears throat> the point is, uh, again, that what's interesting about the study is it shows that the brain's own natural painkiller system is involved in depression and helping people cope with depression and preventing it. And it shows that with people who suffer from depression, there's something defective about this system. And the association that came to my mind when reading about this is if you think about people who get addicted to prescription painkillers, right, there's, there's got to be something different about these folks. Clearly not everybody who takes painkillers gets addicted to them. The differences that I've observed over the years are that the vast majority of people who take painkillers, they, uh, they just take enough to effectively get rid of their pain, and they don't get any feelings of euphoria or happiness uh, uh, or relief from depression from taking prescription painkillers. They get pain relief, they get somewhat... Uh, sleepy or sedated to some degree, 
and they don't get addicted and don't abuse them, and that's pretty much it. But then you have the people who do get a uh, marked euphoriant type effect from taking prescription painkillers. It actually gives their mood and their energy a tremendous boost. And this is why they quickly start using them too frequently and getting dependent on the painkillers and uh, abusing them and really getting into a lot of trouble. Uh, so clearly, uh, work like this research indicates that perhaps what's going on in these folks who get addicted to painkillers is that either due to depression or perhaps some other reason, They've got a defective opioid system in their brain uh, that doesn't function the proper way. It doesn't uh, increase the levels of their own natural opioids or painkillers in the brain on their own. And so that when they take the prescription synthetic uh, opioids, they get this big boost from them because their own brain isn't making the normal amount. And uh, this is why they get such a euphoriant effect and why they uh, become prone to uh, become addicted to them and abuse them. Well, you know, I hope that um, addiction researchers will take note of this study and try to uh, take that result and translate it into a way to, um, you know, diagnose or treat or alleviate painkiller addiction, which is a tremendous, tremendous problem in this country. There's uh, uh, an epidemic of it, and it's causing many, many deaths from multiple drug overdoses, which include painkillers in those cocktails. Well, that's going to have to wrap it up for tonight's show. I hope that you enjoyed the information that I very much enjoyed bringing to you and that you found it interesting and informative. And I sincerely hope that until we get together next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.